and welcome back to Health Meets Home. I'm Lafina Diamandis, and this is the podcast in which we explore the fascinating relationship between health, housing, and everything in between. And each month, I'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in these fields and exploring the different innovations that are being developed to meet the changing needs of our population. And today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Joe Ashbridge, whose passion lies in humanitarian work, disaster relief response, and sustainable development. In 2014, Joe created the architecture charity Azuko to grow the impact of collaborative design. And Azuko supports vulnerable communities in the UK and Bangladesh. And Joe's going to be telling us a little bit about that Hi. today. Welcome, Joe. Oh, great. Great. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. We've also got um, in the studio with us today Amos Goldreich. And Amos is an architect who studies at the Architectural Association in London. Um, he has a practice called Amos Goldreich Architecture. And Amos's practice has a reputation for approaching projects with an open mind and a strong focus on context. They like to think big and they believe in the ideological ethos and value of architecture, which can change people's lives, which is definitely something that resonates with me. And I love the, the phrase that you've coined, an architecture of hope. I think that's fantastic. Welcome and thank you for coming down thanks, today, Amos. Thanks, Lafina. Nice to be here. So I think it would be lovely if, if you could both tell us a little bit about... Uh, yourselves, how how you started out in your in your fields and where you are today. Um, sure. Do you want to go first? Yeah. <laughs> so I studied architecture, but when I graduated, I moved into international development. So using uh, design and architecture skills within quite insecure environments and supporting vulnerable communities, really. So I worked for various nonprofits in various parts of the world, learned a lot from great people, and uh, in 2014 set up an architecture charity um, to sort of take what I'd learned and um, sort of channel what I'm passionate about and work with communities long term rather than moving from grant to grant. So we've been going over five years, we just celebrated our fifth birthday, which is a great milestone, and uh, looking forward to the future. It's fantastic. Great. And how about you, Amos? Um, okay, I've studied architecture as well, um, and after graduating, I've worked for about 10 years in various uh, practices, big and small, um, some very famous, some less, but always uh, wanted to to try it out on, on my own and, and, and have my own practice, and then an opportunity came to do that, um, uh, and we've been going on for about nine years. Wow. Um, there were a lot of um, ups and downs, as, as which is kind of normal for a small practice. There always are when you're running yeah, your own business, yeah. right? Um, and a lot of challenges. Um, and we concentrate primarily on private residential, uh, private clients, but we're fortunate enough to also work in other fields um, of more kind of social related projects. Um, so we, two year, about two years ago, we completed a, a fascinating project um, for a shelter for victims of domestic violence in Israel. Um, took a long time to, to, to realize it. Um, and together with Joe, we're trying to do some work as well. It's actually how we came together. Yeah. Uh, we were at a 
NLA event, New London Architecture, and it was about um, interesting projects where London architects were working overseas. And um, I saw Amos's project and thought, mm, and you tweeted it, and right? I tweeted at you. Yeah. yeah. So we came together by the medium of Twitter because I felt there was a bit of alignment, and we've been best friends ever since. Yes. Oh. <laughs> 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 and I tell you, I am feeling seriously cool today because it, I think if I if I hadn't become a doctor, I would have loved to become an architect. So I feel like I am hanging with the two cool kids in architecture here in the pod. And actually, it's the first time I've had two guests on at the same time. So um, I hope it doesn't get too hot here in the pod. We've got, we're actually four people in here today for, for everyone listening because we've got Sean as well, our sound engineer. So um, excuse us if you do... F- hear a few sounds of us fanning ourselves <laughs> throughout the episode. So you've got lots of experience in, in different areas. And one of the areas, of course, which we're going to talk about today is the relationship between health and housing and design and architecture, which has been really, um, it's become a lot more popular, I think, in recent years. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't think um, that architecture health well-being is necessarily new a new topic yeah but I think there's been a revival and I think um, people are passionate about well-being in all parts of their life and now it's moving into different sectors so it's a bit of a hot topic in architecture now yes Um, but I don't necessarily think it's a new topic of research no I mean I think as architects we we think about well-being almost naturally when we're designing especially well I mean, for us, architecture at the end of the day is, is about people. So, so whatever we do is for for people and their comfort and and so on. Um, but it's certainly in recent years it is a, a buzzword, um, which is to do with all the I guess the craze of being healthy and so on, and that sort of fits into various parts of our kind of life and and so on. Um, but I think there's also um, been a lot of research going on on the effect of, um, for instance, the use of green materials in the built environment or the psychological effect of colors and and um, smells. And yeah. so everything is kind of feeding in. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's not that it's... Um a new concept it's more that it's uh, it's been in the public eye a lot yeah. more hasn't it and there are events springing up in in lots of different cities around the country yeah. we're getting blogs about it and newspaper articles and also i think the general public are starting to understand the concepts yeah. and um demand things of their designers um, so that's always put good good pressure to put on the sector yeah absolutely i think what opened my eyes to it really was um was the recent welcome exhibition, the Living with Buildings, which was just—it was an incredible exhibition. Did either of you? Yeah, I, I went. Yeah. Yeah. So it At just, the welcome collection. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The welcome collection it, it just really gave you a great, uh, a great route, I suppose, through history in terms of um, London urban design, the slums, the effect of sanitation on public health, mm. um, and and really how important that the built environment is to us. And I think you guys have got an immensely important job in, in that respect. Perhaps um, it's approached in different ways by different architects, but the work that you are doing has a really huge impact, doesn't it? 
We like to think so, but at the same time, the way we work <laughs> is that we try to put the our clients or our customers, yeah, uh, end users of the building, um, in the design seat, yeah, um, at Azuko really. So that's so, interesting. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So the idea is that um, people hold the answers to the challenges that they face, um, and as designers or architects, we can be facilitators for change. So yes, we potentially have technical skills that we can contribute but um, for people to to um, design their own ideas implement them they'll, they'll take ownership of that idea and be able to move that forward so that's the, that's where we come from the start of every project god that's that's amazing um, I imagine that's quite difficult to do on a on a large scale or on a fairly regular basis but it would be wonderful if people were more involved in in the design of of communal spaces and how about you Amos um, well, that was quite apparent in the, the shelter that we designed. So from the outset, so our client was uh, a charity in Israel called called No to Violence. Um, and from the beginning, they were an integral part of the design team. So they were they were our immediate consultants. They were the, the client. Uh, I mean, they had the years of first-hand um, experience and, and knew exactly what they needed and and, and so on. Um, and and almost, I mean, they weren't acting as designers, but um, but their input was, was very valuable. Yeah. Um, uh, and, es- and especially with this project where we had loads and loads of uh, obstacles and challenges, um, we were faced by... So it took about nine years to to finish building the the building because the first six were NIMBY, which is um, <laughs> not in term, my backyard. Yeah, yeah, not 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 in my backyard. Um, so that was before wow. any plans were drawn and and so on. Um, and when we got the green light, we all worked kind of together. Full steam ahead. Yeah. yeah. So what what kind of challenges did you encounter on that project? Well, a uh, opposition from the neighbours. So um, the municipality uh, designated a, a site for this project, um, yeah. and these types of shelters need to be close to uh, city infrastructures, or, so they can't be at the outskirts. So uh, the site was um, surrounded by private houses and, and flats, and most of the neighbours. Um, their mission was to to stop it from from or from from this shelter to being built, uh, and it reached the high courts uh, three times. Uh, it was a lengthy uh, legal battle, uh, and there's still. I mean, the the shelter is now fully occupied. It saves lives. Uh, they had three births already, but and and the neighbors still complain. They really yeah on on small things like if they don't pick up the rubbish they they complain and and so on yeah um and then there were um very very low budget and the charity um was um raising money even during during construction clients and all the consultants almost became sort of one one entity so everyone was really behind this project trying to 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 realize it 
Well, congratulations. You, Thank you. You managed to deliver yeah. it. And, yeah. um, and I keep seeing you nominated for various awards <laughs> and winning. winning uh... <laughs> I must say that it, it was been a, a collaboration with between us and, and the practice in Israel, uh, who are close friends of mine. Yeah, um, of course. Jacobs and Yaniv architects. So. Credit to them as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Um, and I know that's a project that you're, you're, you're very proud of. It's very close to your yeah. heart. Yeah. Um, Joe, have you, have you got a project that really stands out for you that you've been working on in terms of social impact? Mm. We've been working with our longest project. We've been working with a community of about 250 individuals yeah. in an informal settlement or slum in northwest Bangladesh for about seven years now. Okay. And the idea behind it, is, we call it incremental slum upgrading. So what does that mean? Love <laughs> <laughs> technical terms in the development sector. <laughs> um, so the idea behind it really is um, that uh, lots of people uh, live in informal settlements, um, but these communities aren't recognised by local authority, and as such, they don't necessarily receive services. Oh wow. um, So the idea behind incremental slum upgrading is that the communities themselves. Um, implement smaller projects so eventually they become recognized as a formal community as a, a as a residential area rather than um, a squatter area yeah and as such they are then mapped and then the local authorities um, have a duty of care to, to support them with systems and services things like sanitation and um, plumbing and electricity so we've been working with this community for about seven years to, to undertake a number of different projects because the right. ultimate goal is that they're recognised as a as a formal residential area. Yeah. So we've um, we've recently just completed a communal sanitation facility. The houses are so small that they can't um, have individual toilets, so they use one facility. But before that, they were just going in the drains because there was no facilities <sighs> um, there. We have implemented some environmental initiatives, so greening of public space. Um, and pilot houses, so encouraging people to build double storey. They can't build out because everyone's crammed in. It's a really dense environment. So if they could um, learn to build up, they would essentially double the size of their house. Um, so we'll continue to work with this with this group uh, in the next five to ten years, really. They've got a lot of um, goals that they want to hit, the next one being... Um, uh, urban drainage so they want to deal with the open sewers that um, run through their community yeah. in a more um, sanitized way gosh what what are the um do you know much about the sort of health outcomes for that community currently because i imagine this is going to have a massive impact on yeah we're such a small organization we can't necessarily map the yeah. impact that large organizations like oxfam no. can yeah. but there are a lot of studies that indicate um that uh, uh, the health effects of living in an environment like this. So in July in 2017, there was a huge flood in that region of the world. Yeah. Um, you might have seen it on the news between India, Nepal and Bangladesh. In this community that we were working with, um, we're under seven, eight feet of water. And that's the size of a single story dwelling. So their entire house was underwater. All their belongings were underwater. And you can imagine with floodwaters and um, uh, open sewers, the contamination of water that is just flooding through your house. That's going into water tube wells or water sources. That's contaminating all your belongings. Um, many houses were destroyed during that time. Um, and yeah, these are just some of the things people are dealing with on a day-to-day basis really um, so we're looking at well they're coming up with ideas of how to improve their 
um, housing and infrastructure so eventually they can go to local authority and demand um, services. That's really just an entire new set of challenges really isn't it it just really puts things in context whilst we're worrying here about maybe um, what colour we're going to paint our walls you know to not even have clean water or bathroom facilities or uh, local authority services that's yeah. it's just another level isn't it we really take for granted all those services for example bin collection people there yeah. they they they, can't, they recycle really well they know how to recycle and reuse yeah. um but what do they do with their rubbish with their plastic rubbish they the options are to um to dig it into the land um <coughs> reclaim land so a lot of the land is built on rubbish um or to burn it and that has consequences in itself so um that's because they don't have services that come and collect their rubbish um so these are the things that they're having to deal with on a daily basis that's crazy. Um, moving back to sort of, I suppose, our our, um, our immediate environment currently, what do you guys think the the biggest sort of challenges within the, the housing sector are from your perspective? Um, well, recently we've been looking at uh, the homeless crisis, yeah. uh, which is a huge problem. What's this, what, what kind of size of problem are we talking about? Um, 170,000 homeless and, and households in the UK. Um, I think there's 9,000 rough sleepers in, in the UK. Three, um, I think about a third in London. It's just staggering, um, isn't it? It's staggering. And, but on, on the other hand, we don't have enough homes, so that. Yeah. Um, but also, there's a lot of empty commercial space in London. Yes. In fact, there's. I mean, we're sitting very close to uh, Westfield uh, in West London, and there's the equivalent of, of te- twelve times Westfield as 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 a total um, unused commercial space in 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 London. What? Which is insane when you think about it. Um, you think how many people that could house potentially? Yeah, but then I mean there are, I mean there's all this discussion now uh, with all the changes in permitted development whether that actually converting offices to housing um, doesn't really work because uh, the sizes of flats that you get and the ceiling height is not. Um, according to to the london standards and and so on um mm. but i mean we i mean we we think that um something needs to kind of uh change in that in that respect and i i think i spoke to you a bit about the fact that i mean the nhs has so many empty properties that are just sitting there mm. um and i read somewhere that they they spend about 10 million pounds a year of just keeping them kind of secured and so on. Um, so what if uh, maybe maybe not as a as a long run solution they were they could be converted to housing, but maybe as a as sort of a meanwhile space. Mm. Um, and you recently pitched at the Archibald presentation. Yeah, How did yeah. it go? Um, it was it was good. We had I had three minutes to present an, uh, this idea wow. which is you can say a lot, but it also 
goes by really, really quickly. Yeah, it does. Um, it was it was a good experience. We didn't we didn't win. It was a great platform, and we met interesting people. It's 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 a big idea, and it's not something that can be sold overnight. And there's a lot of red tape and yeah, and so of course. On. Um, are there are there any um, similar models of housing to that particular idea that well, have worked or well, have been re- implemented? Yeah, well, recently, I mean, there's two examples of, but they're done on a sort of a, on a profitable. Um, sort of solution. So yeah. there are two companies that occupy existing commercial buildings uh, and provide rentable accommodation. So one is acting uh, almost, so you you apply and you become like a guardian of a, of a property. I think you interviewed them. Yeah, I interviewed Tim Lowe from yeah. Lowe Guardians. Yeah. And yeah, they yeah. do exactly that very successfully, yeah. providing low-cost accommodation to yeah. key workers yeah. whilst giving some security to the owners of these empty commercial buildings. Yeah. And there's another company, I think they're called Viva House. Ah, yes. Where you you rent a, a pod which is inside of a commercial building and there's co-living facilities and, and so on. So, I mean, we, we sort of pitched the idea of what if we can take that model and try and implement that on, on homelessness, wh- whether would, that would work or not. Um, so it's, it's something to discuss, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I mean, Amos is great. He's always sending me um, lots of interesting articles <laughs> on, on different housing models, you know, being used all over the world. There are a couple of interesting ones that, that you sent recently, um, I think from the States. Yeah, where yeah there's um, a project called Rehabit. I can't remember the, the name of the architects now. Yeah. Uh, but they've been looking. So there there's a problem of a there's huge parking facilities that are just empty and not used. Yeah. And then the huge warehouses that are owned by the big department stores that are just sitting empty. So they looked at a um, at a scheme of of converting them uh, into housing, sort of affordable housing, but also for the homeless. Um, and delivered it. Uh, they're still. I mean, I've been in touch with them mm. to find out more details. Um, they're in the process of speaking to developers and so on. So, uh, I, th- I think anywhere that you do it, there'll there'll be obstacles and mm. and and yeah, a lot of red tape. I think. Mm. Um, but they've been so they've been. Uh, the rehabbed one also looks at having. Um, Sort of commercial facilities within the the premise of the uh, sheltered accommodation, which I guess sort of gen- would generate sort of revenue to, to to keep keep the shelter going and and so on. Mm. Which is similar to the project Joe and I, the competition we took part mm, in. You might uh, have heard of the Hidden Homeless competition. Oh yes. Uh, so yeah, tell we, us a bit about that. We put a. Um, application in and there was a lot of similar sort of ideas around um co-working oh really and um uh providing accommodation um it was it was looking particularly at um young people um and potentially at temporary accommodation or that stage in the homelessness cycle 
Um, and a lot of people came up with a similar idea of uh, the idea that co-working is is big business right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that could be a potential revenue stream to, to make the model work. Yeah. But also an opportunity for individuals um, to reintegrate back into society and gain skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and the site was the disused um, underground station uh, near King's Cross, oh, uh, right. the York Street. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that, that was the site. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see if anything comes of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's quite positive to hear that people are thinking the kind of yeah. things are going in that direction. Mm. Yeah. So we, I think there were about 50 entries, so we got shortlisted for the final... 14, I think. Mm. Oh, that's great. Well done, guys. Uh, but then they chose five winners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, it, was, it was won by uh, Morris and Company, who are quite a big practice. Okay, okay. Wow, wow. And how about you, Joe? Have you, um, can you tell us a bit about uh, any community projects that you've worked with and, and you know, the experience of, of I, I suppose, co-designing or collaborating with, with local people? Mm. Um, maybe another project in in Bangladesh right now. We're working yeah. with a a very progressive education um, non profit called Jargo. What essentially they do is they provide um, high quality teaching to areas that are either have no um, schools in that district or have um, poor quality teaching. Mm-hmm. And the way they do that is through technology. So they bring they inhabit an existing building or build a new one. They bring a huge antenna. So um, and they are connected to the largest telecom provider in Bangladesh, and they connect uh, the students around forty per class to a qualified teacher in the capital outperforming government schools um, but it's a very directive way of teaching essentially the children are, are sat in lines and they're they're um, communicating with this TV teacher this big head on the screen um, so they're really wow. interested in um, exploring how to uh, bring some of the peer-to-peer learning into the curriculum so we're working with them to extend the 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 classroom into the um, playground and what that could look like, so what the architecture could be to to, to support different types of learning. Um, so we're working with the students, with the teachers, um, to collaboratively design what that looks like, not just the physical structures, but also how that could fit into the curriculum that they already are doing so well. Um, and, yeah, that's been a two-and-a-half-year project. We're hoping to go to site... November, December this year. Oh my goodness! So that's really interesting because it's 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 fascinating to work with children. I mean, yeah. there's no box, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they think big, and they're not limited by finances or what's possible, you know. So yeah, um, yeah that's a really great process to be a part of. That's amazing. And what are some of the challenges with that project being? Uh, well, there are challenges that um, just in terms of the brief, um, mm. we have limited uh, budget. Um, how Jargo works is they essentially support students um, from low-income areas of Bangladesh to go through education. So their priority is not to build playgrounds. So we have to try and work with a budget, potentially no budget, to work out how to deliver those. Um, and it's it's a new model. So um, we are looking at um, examples all around the world in, to, to see what we can bring to Bangladesh and to that particular context. And of course, there's always challenges because we're based in the UK. So what does collaborative design look like when you're not um, based in, in the space? 
that you're working with. Yeah. So we work with our local partners on the ground um, who we've been working with for seven, eight years now. Um, and we go over as, as, as many times as we can, really, for, for key milestones. Um, so, yeah. It's a challenging but fascinating project. Yeah, it must be amazing. What what first inspired you to get into this kind of work? I was in architecture school, loving it, but didn't necessarily feel like I was. I had found my calling. Um, particularly the briefs that we were set in architecture school, and mm. uh, they didn't really inspire me. Um, and I took uh, my third year out in um, and studied in Stockholm and um, was studying with lots of different individuals from universities around the world. And I think I was just inspired by individuals working on different types of projects. Um, and I ended up then going to work in construction in Vietnam um, and worked there for about uh, three months, um, mainly carrying bricks from one end I of was the community to the other. What were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing um, unskilled labour. <laughs> I learned how to bricklay and tried plastering, which is an incredible skill. Um, so we were just building one-room shelters for individuals whose housing um, was at risk of monsoon rains. Um, and the rest is history, really. So I moved from project to project within the social impact design sector. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Slightly different question of you both. I mean, we... In terms of housing in the UK and the impact on health, housing is actually the fifth largest cost to the NHS, mm. which is crazy. Um, I think it comes just after alcohol and uh, and drugs and the chronic diseases like diabetes, diabetes obesity and smoking, mm. um, which I was quite shocked at. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was it's definitely one point something billion. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge cost. And we know that... In well, all over the UK, it's a bit of a postcode lottery. But even within cities, and sorry to list London, but those are the stats that I know. But you know, if we compare postcodes, let's say West London to East London, there is a huge difference in terms of health outcomes, life expectancy, prevalence of chronic diseases, and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on what designers and architects and town planners can do to to kind of change that? That terrible correlation. Tough question, right? Tough question. I mean, what we always champion is that people need to be a part of that discussion. And it can't just be a tick box exercise. So mm. we talk about community engagement and we do rally around these um, community meetings where architects often present the big idea. But is that really them being part of the discussion? Or is it just a bit of a tick box exercise? I mean, I think things are changing. Yeah. There are a lot of really interesting organisations changing where that conversation is happening. And um, whether it's from right at the beginning, um, asking people what they think they need in their community um, before coming up with a design brief. So challenging the brief before it's even on the table. Right. Um, or whether that's having more touch points along the process, um, changing the way we um, we we undertake design um, so I'm a real advocate for people being a part of the design process and maybe taking architects off that pedestal and, and recognising that everyone is a designer in the room and has um, an important part to, to play in that discussion now that's not easy um, I re really recognise that um, you're never going to be able to um, to uh, 
to support everyone's idea. Um, but I do believe if people are part of that discussion, there'll be less challenges down the line where people think that, you know, they haven't been heard and they haven't been listened to. And I think that can implement health and well-being as well. Mm-hmm. Um, people feeling ownership of an idea and feeling it is their community and they've been a part of its development. Yeah. How about you, Alex? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's already, there's few projects that are more kind of community-led uh, developments. So um, um, I, I can't remember now which which borough it, it is, but there are these schemes where um, the, the actual community choose choose the architect, mm. um, and then they start they they become an integral part of of the the really early stages of defining the brief and mm. and designing it and so on. So that's. I, th- I think there'll probably be more more of that, um, but yeah, I mean, um, people um, have to be um, thought of from the beginning and consulted with, and to be part part of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I think something that that also comes to my mind is is the area of social housing because a lot of Social housing is kind of badly designed, or it's not nice to look at, um, or there's not enough access to green spaces. Lighting may or may not be very good. Um, people might feel quite isolated, and just basic things like you know lighting and accessibility and that sort of thing. If social housing was the best kind of housing, everyone would want to live in it, mm-hmm. wouldn't they? Yeah. And we all know of social housing blocks which are amazing and they're very well taken care of and they're lovely places to live, and others that are just really terrible. Why do you why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a tough question. I have a friend who used to work for LSE Cities in a program called Fun- Configuring Light, and they were particularly looking at um, lighting um, within uh, council estates mm-hmm. um, and and how that um, is sort of self perpetuating. It creates crime almost because um, the lighting is quite harsh. It's quite surveillance esque. Um, and there's a reason behind that because potentially there's a certain demographic that are living in this community. Um, but what we're saying is we don't trust you. So if we don't mm. trust you, I mean, why would people take care of their own environment? Because it's not designed for us. That's interesting. So they were doing really interesting pilots um, in London, but all around the world, um, sort of guerrilla lighting and seeing <laughs> how that might change perception of space within communities and working with communities to design that. Um, over a period of, say, a weekend. Uh, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. And what, what were they, their fan findings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what did they find? Well, maybe you can get Mona on the, on the show. She's yeah. I think she's in New York now. Um, but I think there was great, great feedback from the yeah. communities themselves. But also they were bringing the powers that be into the discussion as well to be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we can change minds at, at, at all strata yeah yeah what about you and um, well there's a lot of developments I guess that are s- still here um, from sort of the post-war developments where we kind of needed a lot of housing it's emergency housing yes um, so sort of not I guess not enough thought was mm. was um, was put into into making them a, a place and a home or, or, yeah. or thinking about who, 
who are who are the users, um, and because of that, there's been a, um, a sort of a bad stigma, I guess, on that sort of developments. Mm. Um, um, but I mean, I, I think things are are changing. Um, Design is is known that it it can improve people's lives and so on and and I think councils are um, um, sort of um, recognizing it and 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 developers. Do you think they're prioritizing in it? Um, maybe not. All of them? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> diplomatic, very diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are there are interesting uh, projects in development. So I've um, attended this event on on homelessness that was organised by uh, Morris and Company, who won that competition that mm. Joe and I mm. uh, took part in. And there were representatives from Enfield, for instance, and Dagnum, uh, a company called Be First, which are developers of Dagnum. So they're they're looking, for instance, at developing uh, sites for immediate accommodation for for homelessness. And there's a lot of sort of emphasis on on creating a place and a home and creating a community. Yeah. And what do you what do you both think the key ingredients of of that are so if you were to kind of take a blank slate and you were designing a, a building for a community whether it's social housing or not what what are the most important aspects from your point of view as arch- architects that you'd be thinking about um, obviously factors that contribute positively yeah. to to connection to health to our wellness to to being able to live a full life and fulfill your potential I suppose I mean, one key is a lot of green space and use of plants because that's already proven that it it, it benefits our health and, and so on. So um, is that something that really stands out in, well, that's taught to you in architecture school as you, or is, it, is, that, is that something you, 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 know, you just not, adopted not, in your own practice? Yeah, it's... I, I uh, don't think we ever touched on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is just... Yeah. Um, I mean, we know from, from st- healthcare studies yeah. um, that the view of a natural landscape from your bed can, can improve recovery rates of post-op um, individuals, post-surgery. Yeah. Um, so that has to lend itself to the general public as well. Um, so... Yeah, I think that is a that is definitely a, a key driver. Natural light, um, connection to the outside world, yeah. nature, but also to your fellow human. Um, I think that's also important. So, how do you build community? Yeah. So it's not just about the building and the building fabric, but how, how does that all work? And there's some really interesting developments going on um, in terms of. Um, not necessarily co-living, but collaborative mm-hmm. living, yeah. Um, and what that can look like, and how does that work? And um, and I don't think we've got the answer to it yet. Um, maybe fifty years down the line, we'll have a, we'll have a bit of an insight into how yeah. these communities are working. Um, Do you think that we're just reverting actually to to much older ways of living? That 
you know, we've done for hundreds of years, but we've actually forgotten. And particularly in cities, it's really broken down. Mm. Um, you know, the way people used to live in villages, everyone leaving their door unlocked, looking after each other's children. Um, yeah, when I first moved to London, I couldn't believe it. Uh, um, I'm from the northeast of England. It's very, it's a little different up there. <laughs> you get to know the person you're sitting next to on the bus. <laughs> and I moved to London, didn't know that many people. And... Um, I moved into an estate and I was there for about a year before I moved on yeah. and I still didn't know my next door neighbour. Um, and that was also down to me, not just to the community that I was living in, um, but it wasn't, it didn't allow for those types of meetings right. unless I was literally going to knock on the door and say, here I am, what do you mm. want to have a chat about? Um, yeah. So yeah, that's pretty, pretty tough. And then, and then when we work in Bangladesh, so yes, some of the basic services are not provided, but there's a real different type of community there, um, which I think we, we have lost here a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded, um, so I'm originally from Israel, so I'm constantly reminded uh, by the model of the kibbutz. Um, so having this uh, socialistic core of, of sharing um, sort of facilities and uh, and being um, surrounded by by trees and landscape, everyone has as a home uh, and there's shared co-living and shared co-working. Um, um, yeah, um, so I think I think we we're kind of seeing similar models in in all these sort of uh, facilities that pop-up of, of co-working and, and co-living in, in, in cities, but less with the sort of the social, the socialistic aspect of it. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I think um, we're almost, uh, our time's almost up here. It's been so lovely to speak to you guys. I just wondered if, um, if you'd like to tell people about some upcoming events that you're putting on or what they can look yeah. out for. Well... <laughs> Um, as you might imagine, we're really passionate about regenerative space or spaces that heal. Yeah. Um, we certainly don't have the answers to it. So we're designing an event this October. Right. Um, bringing together people from different sectors, not just architects and people from the built environment, but healthcare professionals, um, people in local authority, um, to, to, to discuss what it means to design regenerative space. Um, and, you know, bring together thought leaders and hear from, from examples that they've been involved in um, to try and potentially come up with some principles um, for what this could be. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, and, and you're, you're a guest on our panel. It's going to be a great honour. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we'll, um, we'll all be posting links to it on our social media. Yes. <laughs> with full details, so definitely look out for that. Where can people find out um, more about you or get in touch? So we're based in Archway. Um, yeah. Our website is www.agarchitecture.net. Um, you can find us on all the social media platforms um yeah and give us a call um we're also in september we're uh, so we're um, kind of local to a farmer's market in ali pali which is on every sunday and in september we're going to have our f uh, first go at a at a stall an uh, architecture stall yes wow <laughs> 
I mean, it's a one-off thing, so we'll see see if it works. But the idea is to um, offer advice um, to, to to anyone uh, with with a kind of nominal uh, sort of fee of, of one pound or something that would go to or charity. people can just donate what they think it yeah. was worth or what yes. they think it is worth right yeah and then all the proceedings will go to charity that's um, very cool. fabulous so that's cool yeah. fabulous so you'll be inundated yeah. yes yeah hopefully <laughs> but the idea is just to go one day only <laughs> well i mean if if it if it's a hit then we'll try and yeah. go maybe once a month but the idea is to go to the to the people mm. that sounds great so, and we're called Azuko, um, so you can find us on the web, www.azuko.org. Um, and, yeah, just drop us a line. If you're really interested in social impact design, we want to hear from you. So, Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'll be posting those links um, out with the, the podcast. Um, thank you both so much for coming down to the pod today at White City Place. Thank pleasure. you. Thank it's a very, very cool much. space. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and have a good old chinwag as always. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do hit subscribe and do give us a review. Thank you. Thank you.